Hello and welcome back to the OSINT Bunker podcast. Um, this evening I'm joined by my co-hosts Austin and George. And uh, this evening we're joined by a guest um, from the infamous Oryx Twitter account, uh, Jakob. Uh, Jakob. Hi. Would you like to just uh, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and the Oryx team? Yeah, sure. Uh, so, uh, uh, I am one of the team members uh, of the Oryx team. Uh, we uh, currently pretty much... Uh, our main activity is uh, counting Russian and Ukrainian losses uh, in uh, this war. Uh, we have uh, earlier also cooperated when covering other conflicts like 2020 Nagorno-Karabakh war and before that civil war in Syria. Uh, in uh, real life, uh, my full-time job is actually in telecommunications. Uh, so I am uh, just one of those uh, IT guys uh, who take care of a critical infrastructure. <laughs> Brilliant. And and how long have you been part of the Oryx team? Uh, we have cooperated for some time, but uh, we started uh, writing together uh, in 2020. And um, yeah, as as Jakob says, the, the Oryx team are uh, quite well known now for their very long and detailed lists of Russian and Ukrainian losses um, in the current conflict. Um, and I think it's fair to say that... Um, they're very, very highly respected in, in both the OSINT community and, and the wider intelligence community around the world, um, to the point of it being a joke that the US military and the US uh, intelligence services use uh, the Oryx team's figures as a pretty good guide for uh, their own intelligence briefings. Oh, yeah, they, they even have a, a Wikipedia page, I believe. Yeah, we do. <laughs> and um, so with that, um, I think, we should probably be discussing sort of the big story of of the week, um, and that is um, obviously the the very near Russian revolution that we saw yesterday. I yeah. call it a slight upgrade of Ukrainian air defenses, <laughs> even if temporary. Absolutely, I think uh, you know that's 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 one way to put it. Looking at the aircraft losses we've seen from what can be described as, I'd say, anywhere from 24 to 36 hours of just internal mayhem within uh, the Russian security apparatus. Um, now, Jakob, I think it's a, a common joke amongst the uh, sort of Twitter sphere on whenever a new front opens up, um, the Oryx team tends to start sweating as they add yet another page of specific losses. How was what was your team's sort of method for uh, in regards to flexibly trying to address equipment losses being reported with the Wagner versus Russian MOD sort of episode that we've just seen? Yeah, pretty much the same as uh, our regular process. Uh, just uh, uh, watching Twitter, uh, relevant uh, Telegram accounts, etc., uh, and just uh, posting. Uh, what uh, we were seeing as soon as we were able to reasonably confirm the footage, uh, which uh, in this case at least uh, was quite helpful uh, uh, when, like, uh, those two showdowns uh, which we have on the video uh, were filmed by uh, multiple people uh, because uh, that uh, relatively quickly allowed us uh, to confirm that it's not something old being reposted, uh, which happens quite a lot during such events, uh, and uh, made us reasonably confident in what's been happening. 
so the idea of, of reposting we've seen quite a bit on um, in the recent couple of weeks, specifically with the uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive and looking at sort of more Russian-aligned accounts reposting different angles of similar images. What's the what's the process that you and your team go about to sort of mitigate um, re repeat reporting? Well, it obviously helps uh, if the equipment can be identified uh, and a lot of reposts are still relatively recent, like let's say from uh, previous month, uh, give or take. Uh, and part of that is because not all of those cases are intentional uh, and they are just uh, people who uh, now stumbled uh, on some content that they think they are and that is actually new. Uh, so uh, we often simply recognize uh, uh, the new footage or uh, image as something we have uh, recently uh, added to the list. Uh, we might uh, check to, just to be sure. Uh, uh, it's worse when, for example, you have winter footage, uh, but it's actually uh, not 2023, but 2022, uh, which happened uh, quite a bit uh, uh, a few months ago. Uh, and that in those cases, it was uh, quite intentional from uh, both Ukrainians uh, and uh, Russians who posted uh, various uh, reposted old uh, videos. Uh, in this case, it obviously helps if uh, you can identify the equipment. Uh, after that, it usually significantly narrows down the search. Uh, we also cooperate a lot with the war spotting team. Uh, several of our members are actually members also of our team. Uh, and their website has a pretty useful search, uh, which allows you to, for example, uh, list only, let's say, T72M uh, that is without threat, uh, which further helps to narrow down the search uh, for potential candidates. Uh, and uh, usually uh, you are down to like checking uh, thumbnails of uh, two pages worth of tanks, which is actually doable in a few minutes, usually. Now, when it comes to comparing sort of the, the war in Ukraine to some previous conflicts um, that you guys have covered, you mentioned the, the Karabakh War and Syria. Were there any sort of particular challenges due to similarity of equipment between sides in the early days? And have you seen those, if those are difficulties, have you seen those sort of um, get easier or harder with time? Uh, yeah, it's a complication and we are still dealing with it. Uh, as a result, uh, there is a whole bunch of losses uh, where uh, we don't have them listed on either uh, Ukrainian or uh, Russian loss list uh, because uh, we still don't have uh, at least reasonable confidence uh, whose side they were uh, on. So <laughs> uh, the actual losses are uh, quite a bit higher than uh, what people see on the lists. It's not crazy number, but it's noticeable. That makes sense as well. Um, uh, folks, I don't know um, if you'd agree on bringing this more towards the meta side of things and looking at the Wagner versus Russian MOD sort of 24-hour, if you want to call it a mutiny, a coup, anything like that. I'm curious to hear the other co-hosts' opinions on this and yours as well, Jakob. As you were looking oh. at, we were looking at the early hours of when Wagner was moving out of its bases into Rostov and anything like that. What were some indicators that you guys were tracking in regards to the direction of this movement and how the resolution would potentially look like? I, I think it's important to get the background for this sudden shift. Um, 
I think it was sort of the early hours of the morning we had reports coming from uh, the Wagner PMC stating that a significant number of their personnel had been killed in a Russian missile attack. Now, I don't know if we've had any sort of firm confirmation of casualties or sort of exact circumstances surrounding that, um, but the allegation at the time was that somewhere in the region of a thousand uh, Wagner PMC members had been in a camp that had been hit by Russian-made missiles, and that in response to that, the, the head of, uh, of of the Wagner group, whose name I am going to absolutely butcher here, and I apologise for that in advance, but Frozhniv, um basically turned round and was very, very vocal and very angry, and stated that he was now going to take this and and, and was going to respond to this action. Uh, action um, and that was sort of when we heard that he was now leading his people in the direction of Moscow um, and his stated intention was to hold those responsible for the deaths of, of Russian troops um, and and particularly I think he was he was looking at sort of the, the Russian chief of general staff and, and the Russian defense minister um, and he was very keen to get his hands on them yeah that makes sense and when it comes to the rhetoric we've seen come out of of wagner in general and prigozhin in particular over the last six months you know for the duration of the battle of bakhmut we've seen sort of a steady escalation in the rhetoric coming from prigozhin himself directed against the leadership in the ministry of defense i'm sure we all remember you know the, the video of him yelling about a shell shortage or specifically blaming um, Shoigu and Garasimov for the losses that the Wagner group was taking. So initially, when the first video came out uh, of him sort of declaring war on the, the Russian MOD, that was the, the specific statement sort of used there, my, my initial assumption was that this was just a, a, you know, another episode in the series of sort of public statements we'd gotten from Prigozhin, you know, ramping up rhetoric towards Shoigu and Garasimov. However, I think the the turning point was starting to see the videos of those convoys coming out of area bases um, near the Ukrainian front line and heading towards, you know, Rostov-on-Don. I think that was a, a bit of the turning point of this isn't just another, you know, hissy fit going out on telegram there's something physical behind it yeah i uh, i would like to point out uh, that uh, it was uh, discovered a bit uh, later uh, but uh, apparently uh, uh, quite a few wagner mercenaries uh, sent messages home uh, about something big happening soon and that uh, they might uh, uh, be going on some very high risk operation uh, like sending messages in case they die, etc. Uh, and uh, to be honest, uh, the uh, video that uh, Prigozhin uh, posted uh, looks a bit staged and doesn't really show like uh, uh, death or significant amount of damage. Uh, so uh, I would say it was most likely staged and uh, he has been planning this uh, for some time. I don't know for how long, but it uh, at least appeared that way. Yeah, I would certainly agree on that point. Um, so beyond the messaging from Wagner members themselves, I think the the execution of this between you know multiple convoys going to multiple areas, 
uh, and targeting specific buildings. You know, in Rostov, they're targeting the um, building of the Ministry of the Interior as well as the Southern Military District Headquarters. Really does indicate that this wasn't sort of a last-minute operation. There, there was some logistical planning behind it. Um, and I think it's important to note that because when you compare that to the response from Russian internal security services, you have one side that appears to be well planned out and you have another that's essentially using delaying tactics. I mean, what we saw from Rosgardia and Russian internal security troops with the FSB doing um, on the M4 highway between Rostov and Moscow was mostly either, you know, we had images of excavators destroying roads, we had images of dump trucks and construction vehicles being used to erect barricades. Um, there were images of roadblocks being set up, but these roadblocks, you know, weren't particularly well armed. I, I'm sure uh, all of us have seen the image of that one roadblock where they have a medium machine gun and a 30 millimeter grenade launcher, you know. These are things that you would imagine seeing in the case of a riot, um, not when there's a particularly sizable military convoy sort of bearing down on your position. Yeah, I found the, the uh, uh, like construction vehicles and parked trucks really funny because if uh, this is how you want to slow down, let alone stop uh, what appeared to be uh, give or take a, a motorized brigade, uh, that's a bit uh, delusional uh, in my opinion and uh, looked really desperate on their part because uh, for any heavy vehicle in that co uh, convoy uh, that uh, Wagner sent towards Moscow, uh, clearing those vehicles took like maybe minutes. It, it was pretty much a joke. Yeah, a joke is how I describe it as well. And and we did see videos of you know anything from tanks to BTRs being used to just move those trucks out of the way. Um, but I, I think desperation is the, the correct term to look at the, the quantity of some of these roadblocks, how hastily they were constructed, and who was doing it. Like, in some cases, it was just local police forces. And uh, that's definitely another sort of indicator at how little heavily armed groups are able to be mobilized quickly within the Russian interior itself. We're, I mean, we're talking about a, a stretch of highway that goes for around 800 kilometers. And along that, if the best that you can muster in a in a 24-hour period are construction vehicles, then that shows there are very little obstacles to any sort of concerted advance on on the capital itself. Yeah, I definitely agree that uh, it's a good indication of uh, uh, how much Western parts of Russia are stripped of anything resembling military units and equipment, uh, so that everything. Uh, possible can be moved uh, to Ukraine. Uh, also, I would make two points. Uh, one is that uh, even where you see like uh, local police or somebody uh, make those improvised barricades, nobody was actually manning them. Uh, they just parked those uh, trucks there or uh, dug up uh, the highway, but uh, there was nobody like with machine guns or anything. Uh, just uh, try to create some obstacle and run away, uh, which also showed that uh, uh, those people weren't uh, exactly ha happy uh, to uh, be facing like potential heavy weapons fire uh, 
and uh, be willing to uh, die uh, to, let's say, slow down the convoy a little bit more. Uh, uh, one more thing, uh, which I considered uh, quite funny, which we discussed with friends on Twitter, uh, is that what uh, Prigozhin did is actually quite reminiscent uh, to what Russia tried to do on day one of this war. Just uh, uh, trying to blitz uh, decision-making centers uh, and uh, hoping for the best. <laughs> I think that's exactly correct. I mean, they they were using, both in the first days of the war and also Wagner a couple of days ago, were using already established infrastructure and basically using the quickest way to get to those decision-making centers without... You know, I, I believe that the Russian military in February of 2022 had far more capability to, you know, fan out and seize territory more methodically than, you know, what could be one to three brigades of Wagner troops. But that being said, I think that the word used in the early days of uh, Russia-Ukraine, specifically in Kharkiv, were attempted thunder runs. And I think that's exactly what we saw Wagner trying to do with Moscow. The, the the UK news coverage of of the whole thing <clears throat> was at times quite amusing, because it was very apparent that generally the media over here were somewhat baffled by what was going on, and one uh, particularly large news organisation, which I won't name and shame on this occasion, um, had to clarify for its viewers that the motorway being referred to was not in fact the M4 in the UK. Oh, um, wow. but was in fact a russian motorway um yeah i heard that that was really funny <laughs> but i i think it's fair to say that the the uk media were not alone and generally the kind of the the confusion that was caused by part of russia turning against russia and i i know from the amount of memes that came out in in sort of the 24 hour period um, I, I, I don't think we've seen anything quite on that scale since the start of this conflict. Um, the, the the Darth Putin account, which is a personal favourite of mine, and I'm, I'm sure many others, um, was tweeting things like, uh, Russia is invading Russia to protect Russia from NATO, who were invading Russia. Yeah, it was uh, actually quite confusing uh, for uh, some uh, news media. Uh, because M4 is a relatively uh, common uh, name for s some highway. Uh, so, for example, one of my friends, when he heard that the Russian Air Force uh, bombed some vehicles on M4 highway, uh, first uh, went to check uh, what was happening in Idlib, uh, where uh, such a highway uh, is going through uh, rebel-held territory. <laughs> and I think yeah, the... At one point, I even had to tweet that you know s some of these mock accounts were struggling to, to come up with something original at this point because just the ridiculousness of the situation was now approaching the sort of joke levels that we've seen. And I think UK and uh, the UK media in particular here, when we talk about, you know, coverage of this event, actually did a, a fairly decent job at highlighting, you know, the absurdity of Prigozhin getting to this point. Mm. Um, I mean, uh, I've talked to to some colleagues here in the States and for ones that weren't super into uh, or had been following Russia very clearly, the equivalent of, you know, a celebrity chef seizing with a private military a major city in the United States and then marching on the capital while having minimal resistance 
is is insanity it's it's i i couldn't have dreamed it up if i was writing fiction um but i i think it's equally important to note specifically again going back to uk media coverage was they kept sharing one image of Prigozhin himself after they did it after putin's speech they did it uh in the initial coverage and the image of was when Prigozhin was back in his catering days serving you know putin a meal and so oh, the, the <laughs> yeah the interspersing of the imagery between you know these vehicle convoys and uh you know footage of those helicopters being attacked with this guy just you know being a chef to me personally was just hilarious and it's yeah it's a go ahead it's, it's it's an amazing origin story really for him when when you think that he was putin's chef he had a very successful hot dog business and you, you kind of have to look at that situation and look at the fact that as as we've kind of mentioned it, it, he's in charge of a private army and putin's more or less allowed that to happen over the years and then for the circumstances to unfold the way that they did certainly initially it did did pose a lot of questions really i mean I, I was sat there thinking, is is Putin genuinely going to be like removed by this guy? Is his old friend, you know, the old hot dog seller, is he actually going to march all the way to the Kremlin? Um, I think, I think one thing, you know, is very clear from this, and that Putin's strongman image has been seriously diminished by this. Hmm. Yeah, I think uh, Russia is going to uh, look weakened and uh, quite ridiculous. Uh, and I think uh, this was pretty desperate uh, act from Prigozhin uh, because most likely uh, Putin uh, was already in St. Petersburg uh, when this was settled. And if uh, Prigozhin and his uh, about 5,000 troops arrived uh, into Moscow, uh, what then? Uh, because 5,000 troops is not that many here in such a large city. They could have occupied some buildings and, uh, let's say, fought some uh, local garrison and police and whatnot, but uh, their forces would be either uh, uh, so di diluted uh, in such a large city uh, or uh, they would be controlling very small area. So I didn't see how they could have actually overthrown uh, Putin. Taking over MOD uh, building, maybe that would be plausible, but still, it wouldn't change the outcome. I agree, and specifically when you look at the amount of forces they had, and also uh, looking at historical coup attempts that have either succeeded or failed, uh, the objectives are far different than you know a, a standard conventional invasion. You're not looking to seize territory; you're looking to dominate. You know telecommunication centers, you're looking to dominate the narrative, and you're also looking to disable or remove um, decision makers. And even though Wagner was moving far quicker than every, anyone had really expected, uh, there was still ample amount of time for Russian executive transport flights, uh, assumably to evacuate leadership to anywhere from St. Petersburg to other, you know, decision-making centers. So if Wagner had continued on and gotten to Moscow, like Jakob was saying, 
um, I agree that they probably would have been able to see some buildings, but then the question becomes, what now? Because if we if we look at the Turkish coup attempt in 2016, um, the uh, opposition forces did seize buildings in, in Istanbul. Um, and even after doing that, they just really didn't have the staying power to face the rest of the Turkish military in tandem with all the protesters that had shown up. So... I very much agree. Once the decision makers had left Moscow, there wasn't much more of an objective there unless they wanted to make some sort of symbolic stand. Still, I think uh, there is a reasonable uh, case to be made that uh, this showed how weak uh, Russia is uh, for this case, uh, this kind of scenario. Because if this uh, started uh, as a real attempted coup, not just wanted to, let's say, get rid of uh, uh, Gerasimov, uh, etc., Uh, and if this started in Moscow, not uh, like thousand kilometers south of it, <laughs> uh, I think uh, given how stripped uh, Moscow and its uh, region uh, is of military units, that uh, such a coup would have a reasonable chance of very quickly succeeding. And I think that was an indicator of <clears throat> just how uh, concerned the Russian leadership perhaps were. Because as much as, you know, Wagner didn't get all the way to Moscow, there was a point where we started seeing some VIP flights departing from Moscow and heading yeah. to surrounding cities. Now, admittedly, we don't know who was on those flights and, and you know, it, it could have been pretty much anyone. It could have been families of senior officials. It could have been the senior officials themselves. Vladimir Putin could have absolutely panicked and gotten on one of the flights himself, for all we know. Um, but there was clearly a a recognition from them that there wasn't an awful lot standing between Wagner and Moscow. And obviously the way that things unfolded, and, and as you say, the fact that Wagner could have gotten to Moscow and ultimately taken a few buildings, but probably wouldn't have actually captured anyone of any real importance i i think that was probably part of why the situation concluded the way it that it has um although even then the the, the circumstances around putin sort of effectively sending uh the head of wagner to belarus and the rest of, of, of the Wagner forces returning to their bases all of a sudden. Um, I, I think there's still quite a lot of questions to be asked about that. And what would, yeah, uh, what I uh, find interesting if uh, you, uh, let's say, uh, want to uh, play some alternative scenarios, uh, let's say if uh, Ukraine didn't do those minor raids uh, into Belgorod uh, a month ago or something, uh, but instead uh, pre prepared surprise attack into Russia, let's say, with five plus brigades. <laughs> yeah, we are now seeing how little uh, Russia has in the rear. <laughs> it could be quite, quite interesting to play such, such a scenario, how it would uh, come out. <laughs> yeah, and this comes uh, on top of, you know, a year of, you know, sabotage efforts ongoing within Russia proper um, and seeing, you know, I think this episode has been quite illuminating as to, as, as Jakob pointed out, how little sort of security forces there are not already deployed um, in Ukraine. And so the, you know, the 
the minor success of the raids into Belgorod, and now looking at um, this episode in Rostov and Voronezh, I really do illustrate that the vast majority of the Russian military that's capable of combat is in Ukraine. Um, and they don't have the capability to change that posture uh, quickly at all. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see where they go from there. But I think what's also important to point out is um, despite this not, you know, resulting in a, in a full-blown civil war or even a mutiny that lasted longer than two days, um, we did see something that we rarely see, and that is a complete 180 in decision-making from um, the Russian government. It, it took less than, I believe, 12 to 18 hours uh, from the Russian government, you know, levying uh, criminal charges on Prigozhin himself, and then Putin coming out and describing the, the mutiny as treasonous, and that, you know, uh, these people will be brought to justice. And a mere five hours, six hours after that, we go completely about face to all the charges are dropped. He's just going to Belarus. Uh, we're not pursuing prosecution. So it, it is a severe loss of face for, for Putin because to, to go from calling someone a traitor to saying everything's chummy is, uh, I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a strike at legitimacy for certain. I agree. The future of Wagner is in question, though, isn't it? Because the Kremlin has hinted at the dissolution of the group. More so, yeah. Putin suggested bringing. Sorry, <clears throat> Putin suggested bringing all volunteer units under the control of the defense minister. So, uh, from what I read, the conditions uh, they agreed is that uh, Wagner troops who took part in this will go to Africa, and those who didn't take part uh, will uh, be absorbed into MOD units. So Wagner is pretty much gone, except uh, it might for uh, some time uh, exist uh, as an expeditionary force in Africa, Middle East, and who knows where. Uh, but I suspect uh, they won't exist for long. And I suspect that despite security assurances, uh, that Prigozhin won't live for very long either. Putin doesn't... Uh, uh, tolerate uh, what he considers to be a betrayal, uh, all that, uh, well. Yeah, so Prizhogin needs to stay away from uh, balconies and hospital windows and, well, any other sort of window, really. <laughs> yeah, early retirement in Belarus doesn't seem particularly likely for this one. Also avoids uh, any tea. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I'm in full agreement there. I believe many sort of Russian, uh, not Russian, sorry, Wagner um, commanders are currently measuring the exact uh, heights of their respective staircases right now. Um, so, but it will be interesting to look over the next month, I would say, whether or not this sort of exile in Belarus holds, because uh, like you all have pointed out, previous instances of, you know, heads of uh, military forces adjacent to the Russian MOD, and the one that comes to mind to me is uh, Motorola, the head of, I believe it was the um, DPR's militia forces during the uh, 2014 war. Um, he was assassinated after, you know, making statements contrary to what the Russians were saying. So I, I would not put it outside the realm of reality that we may see a similar operation to remove or neutralize Prigozhin himself. Now that he's kind of on the back foot, I mean, like uh, we've pointed out, a lot of Wagner fighters are being redeployed to Africa. They're not going to be able to help him in Belarus. He won't have the same sort of um, capacity 
to execute an operation like this. And when that's gone, he's kind of a sitting duck. And if you look at uh, past such operations, for example, like you mentioned in Donbass, uh, we have seen uh, multiple uh, fairly senior uh, officials of uh, LNR and DNR uh, killed because they uh, stopped being uh, convenient to Russia. Uh, and uh, it was like a thermobaric rocket grenade uh, through your office window and things like that. So <laughs> not exactly uh, too hard to determine how what happened and who was responsible considering that uh, there wasn't even a proper investigation which uh, made it easy uh, for people to conclude uh, who was behind those actions yeah that is the interesting thing about how these operations have gone in the past and one that's still suspicious to me to this day is the um cafe bombing in saint petersburg uh, when you look at sort of the investigations that are launched into these um, instances they are very shallow or they tend to try and find like a scapegoat very early on and they they basically you know wrap up shop boys the the job is done we found the person when it's very clear that there's there's no way they would have known something like that so soon so yeah i think it's clear that the the russian internal security apparatus both has the means and the appetite to continue you know neutralizing people who aren't towing the line which is also why I found it interesting that some of the first sort of Russian-adjacent um, sources voicing support for Putin were coming from the Russian periphery. You had statements from the governor of Crimea. You had statements of you know, the leader of South Ossetia, you know, a Russian proxy state. Um, these are all people who know where their bread is buttered, so to speak, and have seen what happens when loyalty to to putin and to the russian government isn't assured in my opinion this event also uh indicates uh, one of those things or mix of them uh either uh, russian internal security is completely incompetent uh in terms of uh, predicting this uh, and warnings uh putin and other senior officials uh about this let alone discovering specific plans uh, for it, or uh, Putin and uh, other senior officials not uh, reacting to that intel uh, sufficiently or in time, which neither of those are very good things uh, uh, for the Russian government and uh, its future, especially uh, given uh, their already miserable performance in Ukraine. So I, I think this actually brings us to a topic that's relevant to the, the larger war in Ukraine. And something that we've been harping on for the last year is as this war has gone on, we've seen a degradation in capabilities from the, the Russians in particular, uh, whether it's flight hours for aircraft or you know available experienced tank crews. Um, I think likewise, we this is a really good example of that affecting Russian intelligence services. Uh, I'm sure we all remember about a year and a half ago when there was um, a large-scale sort of purge within the FSB. Uh, and I think whether we're talking about large-scale mobilization, the need for more manpower um, conducting intelligence in Ukraine itself, or uh, simply, you know, former FSB agents being needed for the front, 
uh, we've seen the Russian ability to conduct internal security degrade alongside, you know, its military capabilities in Ukraine. And so, so a question that I have for you, Jakob, is specifically when it comes to the Oryx project and tracking sort of equipment losses and anything like that. Are there any trends that you guys have been following that indicate sort of this, this capability, um, capabilities of the Russian military or the Ukrainian military degrading over time in a, in a large way? Uh, yes, uh, we are seeing over time. Uh, if you compare uh, data from one month after another, uh, that uh, the percentage of modern equipment among the losses is uh, steadily decreasing and being replaced by Soviet equipment slash junk, depending on how old equipment you are talking about, uh, because uh, already last summer we have seen a significant amount of uh, T-80BVs, which is variant from mid-80s, uh, being reactivated from storage and sent as a replacement uh, for lost tanks. Uh, and uh, this continued and over and now we are down to uh, T55s being sent as uh, VDIEDs uh, loaded with six tons of uh, uh, explosives, which I found really ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, I was going to bring up that that instance in particular because that was a, a huge signal sort of that i mean that's a the use of a, an older armored vehicle as a vvid is something that i was more sort of used to seeing in syria um so to see that being used in ukraine was odd at first glance but also i think shows a bit of desperation because like you you mentioned some of this old soviet equipment particularly you know t-55s aren't particularly useful going up against any sort of equipment, you know, built after 1980. So the conversion of them into these armored VBIEDs uh, is curious, kind of funny, uh, but I'm, I'm interested in, so I've seen the one video. Have you seen anything indicating that this is a trend for some of these older equipment to basically just be used as, as mobile bombs? Uh, yeah, we have seen, I think, two or three more MTLBs, uh, uh, which are essentially uh, minimally armored and minimally armed uh, uh, tractors slash APCs, uh, which have been also used as uh, VBIEDs. Uh, some of them uh, parked, uh, uh, allowing uh, Ukrainian troops to get close and then detonating them. Uh, others, uh, just like that tank, uh, just... Uh, being uh, driven towards the front line and uh, driver uh, jumping uh, a few hundred meters out uh, and hoping that uh, it will actually uh, get to the target. Uh, so it's not the first case. We have seen first uh, one actually in, I think, Bakhmut or somewhere near it. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, from what I recall uh, from a friend of mine, Hugo Kaman, uh, who uh, writes about BBIDs a lot, uh, the case with uh, T-54-55 uh, was actually uh, in the same area as, uh, I think, two more. Uh, so it might be some improvisation of uh, some specific unit. Uh, also, I would speculate, and I stress speculate, uh, that some of this might be uh, also due to uh, equipment uh, not being in good shape and uh, either uh no prospect of uh, being repaired or being repaired anytime soon so the unit might decide that if the tank 
let's say, uh, can't move its turret or shoot or do something else useful, they might as well load it with explosive and try this. But that's it. That's a theory. So, so, so that speculation, I do think, is important as well because uh, something in the early days of the conflict um, that was mentioned quite a bit was the the finding of European subsystems within more modern Russian equipment. Um, looking at at the Russian capability to manufacture these subsystems um, and seeing that you know. I don't believe T-55s were manufactured past the year, past the 70s, to my knowledge, but I'd have to check that. Um, so I don't think it's a, a large jump in logic to assume that in the case where some of these, these really old pieces of equipment have a turret ring fail, or you know the gunner sight isn't operating, or even the cannon can't fire, um, not having any prospect or not having any sort of company manufacturing or having the ability to cannibalize that part from another vehicle, uh, the sort of use of that, I mean, tank as a as an improvised explosive device is sort of a a last ditch sort of only option where you use it or lose it. Yeah, I think uh, they probably have uh, some uh, spare parts at least uh, from tank other uh, equipment that is in storage. Uh, but if you request, uh, uh, let's say, uh, some part uh, for your T fifty four. Uh, uh, it, even if it goes through all the bureaucracy uh, and uh, the unit uh, uh, which has it in storage uh, dismantles another one and sends it to you, it might arrive in a month at best. Uh, because if you look at those storage sites where this equipment is, uh, most of it is actually uh, in the Far East. So <laughs> it's like, what, 7,000 kilometers or something like that? <laughs> Nobody, and nobody will airlift like engine transmission for you. I think uh, also that uh, there is good chance that uh, to uh, maintain or uh, repair battle damage, etc. Uh, on uh, vehicles that are currently active in Ukraine, uh, Russia might actually uh, be uh, stripping some vehicles in storage for parts uh, in addition to uh, parts production uh, to keep everything running because uh, I seriously doubt that uh, Russian spare part production uh, of all uh, types uh, is built uh, for this intensity of operations, uh, amount of damage to be repaired, etc. So if uh, you are making, let's say, 20 transmissions a month uh, at peak end, you need, let's say, to replace 50 of them. You need to get those uh, 30 extra somewhere. So... Uh, some of the uh, vehicles that uh, actually exist, unlike those that uh, are only on paper in Russian storage, uh, as we have seen with uh, many uh, their tanks, uh, might actually be dismantled uh, for this purpose, especially those in relatively worse condition that would take more time and more effort to reactivate. Yeah, I, I think that was very succinctly put. Um... No, no disagreements uh, from my end whatsoever. I think moving to another topic here, I'd be curious, Jakob, to hear sort of your opinion on where the Ukraine war sits now, having you know done all of your analysis, where do you potentially see it going? And then after that, I'd like to ask a couple of more questions about you know the Orcs project itself. Sure. Uh, so my personal opinion is that Ukraine still have a decent chance 
uh, of uh, breaking the land bridge, but it will definitely be slow and bloody. Uh, and uh, I don't think uh, uh, there is currently prospect of liberating all of uh, occupied uh, Ukrainian territory by force anytime soon. Over time, sure, but not likely to happen like this year, probably. Uh, and uh, it will depend a lot uh, on what uh, else is West willing to supply in terms of equipment, ammunition, uh, and uh, obviously uh, in terms of uh, ongoing support. So uh, that's a bit of a guessing game. Uh, I expect that Europe won't be a problem in this regard because uh, EU already committed like 50 billion euro uh, in multi-year uh, economic support package and uh european uh, various european companies uh, are like ramping up uh, production of weapons and ammunition with expectation uh that uh it will be uh, going to ukraine and they already have like at, at least a lot of them have signed contracts with government for number of years uh i'm not sure what the us politics will do uh, in this regard, uh, I am reasonably optimistic that at least another reason, pretty big package uh, of military aid will go to Ukraine. Probably no more economic aid, I would I guess, but that's my guess just. Uh, and everything else is a bit too hard to predict uh, because it depends uh, what's going to happen. I think that's, that's very well put as well. Um... Now, uh, talking about the the Oryx project, I'm sure um, many of our listeners and you know ourselves all read the the statement you guys put out that you will sadly be sort of sunsetting the project. I believe in either August or September. Um, what was sort of the the calculus behind this decision? And you know, we all understand that you guys have put thousands upon thousands of man hours into this project. So I'm just curious as to sort of your opinion on you know, the, the decision-making behind this, as well as what do you think the, the future holds for the team and its members? Yeah, so uh, our, uh, uh, let's see, uh, team in Netherlands uh, is essentially retiring, and since uh, the admin uh, is uh, pretty much burned out, uh, he decided uh, to end the project. Uh, I have said that... Uh, I intend to at least try to uh, finish uh, documenting Ukrainian and Russian losses uh, until the end of the war. Uh, obviously, uh, this will require some help, so uh, I will likely be joining uh, my colleagues from the war spotting team, helping them. Uh, and uh, we have admin access to the website, so uh, we can continue uploading them. Uh, Oryx doesn't... Uh, care if uh, we continue or not with this effort. Uh, so I think it's a worthwhile effort. Uh, but uh, this will be pretty much uh, our final project uh, and uh, no other uh, work on the uh, Oryx block is planned. So maybe I will uh, be doing something else later, maybe joining some other team or working on something else. We will see. There are plenty of things uh, to work on in this field. Yeah, well, well, thank you for uh, 
thank you for answering that. I, I hope that, you know, I honestly hope that the entire team, you know, finds a place where they can, you know, continue doing just the absolute stand-up work that they have been doing and that y'all have been doing. Um, no further questions from me. Yeah, I would just add that uh, for us, it was uh, just a hobby we did for free, uh, not as a job or anything. Uh, and obviously the scale of uh, work on this war Uh, was quite overwhelming uh, and uh, it's relatively easy to burn out uh, on a hobby that you are spending uh, like let's say six hours a day working on yeah and we've you and i have had a brief conversation about that jacob and and, and the the fact that as you say it's, it's done for free and, and the vast majority of us in, in the OSINT community do what we do for free we, we don't get anything out of it um particularly with the quality of the work that you guys have done and and particularly as i said at the start of the episode um the fact that it, it's kind of an accepted albeit unconfirmed uh statement that the figures and and, and the research you guys do is taken as fact by intelligence services in in, in you know several parts of the world um and Ultimately, unfortunately, I, the, there does come a point where where you do get burnout, or where having to do it all and do it all for free does eventually lead to a point where you can't continue. And um, your loss, uh, the, the loss of the Oryx team and, and and the project as a whole, is obviously going to be a huge, huge uh, deal for a lot of us who who obviously follow your work and and for the wider community as well. Um, we we can but hope that someday there will be some sort of funding put in place to allow work like yours to either restart or, or, or to at the very least continue. Yes, it would be really nice if uh, government, various government employees and think tankers uh, at least acknowledge where uh, they are taking data. Uh, I have, uh, when I was uh, doing work on Syrian civil war, I have actually seen my uh, work uh, quite uh, literally stolen, copy-pasted uh, for government report, uh, which I only learned because uh, one of my uh, friends uh, was uh, presented this uh, report uh, at his job, uh, which was quite interesting uh, because uh, I wasn't even credited. <laughs> let alone uh, revo like uh, paid or something uh, uh, for having my work uh, copy pasted by a think tank that was I'm sure pretty well paid for it. So that's a pretty pessimistic uh, part of doing OSINT work, uh, especially in uh, military intelligence field uh, where somebody else uh, can just uh, sit in his uh, chair and once a week copy paste your data <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah it would be really nice if uh, there was let's say some institutional support on let's say eu level uh, for this kind of projects and to be honest if you look at some of the uh, past uh, uh, pentagon effort uh, for let's say, uh, around various PR, like their anti-ISIS campaign. Uh, it was like 10 plus million uh, spent uh, on some 
Twitter nonsense that uh, got like few likes and uh, immediately died with nobody even noticing, except the of uh, Pentagon accountants. Like, uh, I'm sure those governments could uh, spare some uh, reasonable amount of money to pay people living wage to uh, do this uh, uh, professionally or uh, at least be contracted out in some on some sustainable basis because obviously nobody is going to uh, be doing this in like okay now I will uh, document losses in this small regional war and wait two years for another project <laughs> there needs to be some sustainability yeah and I guess my my hope is we have seen over you know the past two years far more interest whether that's from the public or from institutions into work like uh what you guys are doing and then open source intelligence in general and so my hope is that that sort of institutional support continues to grow to a point where projects like oryx can be sort of sustainably funded and can be sustainably um staffed i think an issue that all of us have run into has been burnout with the the sheer amount of information to cover and to to discuss to write about and everything like that so i i think the trends right now do look positive however institutions move slowly and so the question is going to be whether institutional support materializes in a in a large way to sort of ensure that projects like oryx can be funded and you know it's not just a bunch of folks doing a ton of work for absolutely free. Yeah, uh, here I would uh, also add that uh, since so many people asked about it, uh, the block itself uh, will be preserved. Uh, uh, we will uh, pretty much uh, after we finish our work uh, arrange for uh, fees. There are like a few dollars a year or something uh, to be paid. Uh, and the website will stay up with uh, all the data, etc. Uh, and uh, we'll obviously be cooperating with number of people uh, on uh, like uh, war spotting team uh, with whom we are already sharing data. Uh, so uh, the work will be uh, preserved uh, uh, in both original forms uh, and uh, as adapted by others. Um, because, for example, War Spotting Team has very similar list like ours, but even more conservative. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'm sure something like this will continue to exist. Uh, but uh, having some some uh, organizational support and uh, structure uh, would definitely help uh, in the future. Because even if people, uh, for example, don't burn out. Uh, People, uh, uh, people might have uh, some family commitments, uh, uh, work uh, issues, or something, uh, or somebody might have uh, health issues. Uh, so uh, sooner or later, uh, everyone will stop uh, working on given project and move on uh, either to some other project or completely out and just uh, stay as an observer. Uh, so there needs to be. Uh, both attraction of new talent and obviously uh, some sustainability. Yeah, and on that note, I think we will bring this episode to a close. Um, Jakob, thank you very much for joining us, mate. It's been a pleasure having you.
yeah no problem it's great talking to you um and yeah as i say we will call it a day there so um ladies and gentlemen thank you very much for listening this has been uh, season five episode seven of the osint bunker podcast um and we will catch you in the next episode <laughs>